Hello, and welcome to the first ever videotaped episode of the Dave's Dispatch Podcast. I'm glad that you joined us. My name is David Dennison, and we're going to be talking about this week in politics. But first, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping. The reason that this is the first time you are seeing my great for radio face in front of you, if indeed you are watching and not just listening, is that I'm trying to branch out and I'm trying to change up how I've been doing the podcast over these last several weeks as I have tried to kind of find my footing. And one of the things that I noticed about the podcast when I was listening back to it was that it sucked. And having me just reading from the newsletter was boring and inauthentic and it sounded just kind of naff and announcery. So I'm not going to do that anymore. What I'm going to try playing around with, and I'm very new to this, so it's kind of a nerve-wracking experience for me, is just being more authentic and talking about the things that I talked about in, or that I wrote about in the newsletter. Uh, so that will be different. And one of the things that I am already learning just as I am starting out this video um, and this cast is there's a reason why the vast majority of podcasts are co-hosted. And there's a reason why so many of them have interview as part of the format. It's because doing this is very un unusual. I'm looking at a picture of myself and just kind of talking into the ether. It's odd. And I am going to do my best uh, to speak coherently and in an engaging way about issues. But I'm going to start just by talking about the month that I've had. I'm going to try not to do too much of this, uh, writing about writing, talking about talking. But I sometimes find content about how to do what I'm trying to do useful to read in the event that there is anybody in my audience who might also find it beneficial to hear a little bit about how this journey has been for me. I'm going to talk about it. And one thing, I wish I could credit whoever it was that said this, but one thing I read that was sort of useful was that when you're just starting out, you feel like an extreme novice because you are, and like you're grinding social media for followers, and that that is soul-destroying. I mean, I'm almost 40 years old, and I'm like here trying to figure out how to get people to like me on Instagram. It just doesn't feel like what I should be doing. And the temptation to quit can be pretty overwhelming, but one thing that it is important to remember is that the internet is a big place, the internet is a growing place, and there's always somebody who's on the rung of the ladder beneath you. So I am also a big believer that one of the best ways to learn is to teach. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what's been happening and what some of the challenges have been. So actually writing the newsletter itself has been enormously rewarding. I was, If you are friends with me in real life, if you have followed me on Facebook over the years, you know that I do a lot of political writing anyway. So I kind of knew that that wasn't going to be the big structural obstacle to, to making this thing work. What I knew was going to be the obstacle, and indeed it is the obstacle, is just growing a following and a readership. Now, this is probably a good time for a self-plug. If you have any interest, please throw me a subscribe on YouTube or think about going over to the Substack and becoming a free subscriber to the newsletter. Lots and lots of content that you don't have to pay for, and every little bit does help me. But the social media landscape is saturated with platforms. It's very, very, very hard to know which ones are good to go on. I've sort of landed on trying to do Twitter, but like I'm struggling to crack 70 followers, and it's brutal, and I feel like a sleazebag because I'm going on there, and I'm trying to 
ape people's comment threads and like be the first one in there to land some interesting, insightful thing that's going to make people share me and I'm going to kind of piggyback off the uh, hard work that somebody else has already done and off of the fame that they've already generated. And I, it just makes you feel icky. And I, it's how you play the game and it's what you have to do. But uh, that part of this experience does stink. And I've been very fortunate that I had a lot of friends on Facebook who appreciated my writing and were very encouraging. A huge number of them became subscribers. Some of them even did me the courtesy of becoming paid subscribers, which was great. And so I've got some kind of foundation for the newsletter to start off with. And I just, you know, I don't feel like I'm kind of screaming into the ether with it, which is a nice thing. But the process is a grind and it can be very, very daunting. Just not knowing who's listening, not knowing how to get anyone to listen to you or read your stuff. Uh, it's brutal. So if you're a writer, if you're trying to be a content creator, stay with it. I feel you. Uh, because I am so much of the content that is out there online about this and about people who do this is written by people who have on some level already done it and succeeded. And they've already got a huge following on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, or on YouTube. And they're telling you, you know, kind of, here's my success story. Here's how I did it. Not just for posterity, but in the event that it's helpful, I wanted to talk a little bit about what the view is like from the other side of the fence, from someone who hasn't done it, who does not know what success in this industry feels like, uh, and who hasn't achieved it yet. So that's my little missive. There are a couple points I want to talk about because some things are going to change about the newsletter. And one is that I'm just going to be scaling back slightly the volume of the content. And the reason for that is really that I think I've been trying to do three a week and I think that's too much. I think that that's just hard on the inbox. That is a big commitment. And I know what it's like because I subscribe to a lot of newsletters on Substack. I know what it's like when your email box is just blowing up with these newsletters and you kind of don't know what to do with all of them. So I've been doing three a week. I'm going to pull back and try to focus more intently on two a week. So that's going to be one change. I'm also obviously changing up how I do the podcast. So I may still do the thing where I read the newsletter as an accessibility feature. Um, if you have been listening to that and if you have found that useful, that it would be a very easy thing for me to do and keep as part of the free content uh, that is hosted on Substack. Do let me know if you end up missing that because I can always do both this and that. Uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of experimenting with trying to figure out what is going to be the best way uh, to, get, to get my words out there. Um, so that is going to be a change, and this kind of broadcasting thing and being on YouTube is going to be a change, and that is a really scary experience because I don't understand how YouTube works at all. I know how to watch my little history videos that I like, and I know how to pull up, like, funny clips of TV shows. I do not know how the social media aspect of, of YouTube functions. I've never participated in YouTube that way. So, yeah, that's going to be real exciting. And I'm sure I'm going to be great at it right off the bat. Um, the other thing that is going to be a, a, a significant change is that I am going to start including some paid subscriber-only content. There's not going to be a lot of that at first. I, I want to keep as much of the experience of uh, being a part of the newsletter to be free as possible because right now, you know, it's like I just need eyes on it. I can't be trying to get exclusive when I have fewer than 100 subscribers. Like, what kind of arrogance is that? But I also do want to honor 
the faith that my paid subscribers have showed in me. Uh, and I want to do that by giving, offering something that is just for them. So I don't exactly know what this is going to look like yet. Probably it will be that 20 to 25% of the content on the newsletter will go behind a paywall. Also, it will probably mean that there will be a free version of the podcast and an extended paid version. Uh, that seems to be how most people in this industry do it. If I can think of other ways to offer exclusive content for paying subscribers, I will do that. Um, but expect in the next few weeks that some of the, if you are a free subscriber, some of the letters you receive might be paywalled uh, and you'll only get a little preview and then that is used to entice you to up your membership to a paid one, uh, which is obviously something that would benefit me enormously. So we're going to move right in now. That's enough housekeeping, I think, for one day. And we're going to talk about a story that just had me really annoyed all weekend. Uh, and it's a story emerging out of Florida where Governor Ron DeSantis has thrown his weight behind a legislative effort to ban cultivated meat, which is otherwise known as lab-grown meat. Now, I need to put a disclaimer ahead of this. I, this is not going to be a lecture. I have absolutely no basis to lecture anybody about food choices. I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. I've never been a vegetarian. I do not shop ethically for food. I do not buy organic. I eat veal. I have had foie gras and liked it. There is, I, I'm not a hunter or a fisher, so I'm not even one of those like, well, if I'm going to eat an animal, I'm going to have killed it myself type guys. No, absolutely no leg to stand on for me to be lecturing anybody about their food choices. So that's not why this irritated me. It irritated me because it seems to me that there is an enormous amount of potential in lab-grown meat that we, there are, it's hard to know kind of who to believe about this, but because um, there's a lot of motivated reasoning. A lot of people who are strongly in favor of lab-grown meat are pushing a narrative and then people who hate it are saying, well, it's gross and it's going to make us all sick and turn us into zombies or whatever. But some of the potential benefits articulated about what this could mean for the future of food are that this could be much better for the environment. It could be much better for water conservation. It could be much better for land use. It could be much easier to feed huge numbers of people because it wouldn't be as labor intensive to produce good quality protein-rich, nutrient-packed food. And there is some precedent for this. And so I think, it, I think a lot of those issues are, are left-coded, as in environmental issues, water rights, and of course, animal cruelty. Those are all kind of squishy, marshmallow, lefty issues. But this is also one where there is some opposition to cultivated meat coming from the left. And that comes from the sort of anti-GMO subset of the population. Let me say a few things about that, because being against GMOs, which is genetically modified organisms, is such an obnoxious, I'm sorry, it's such an obnoxious ivory tower belief. GMOs are responsible for feeding an enormous percentage of the world. Hundreds of millions of people are not living in dire starvation because of GMOs. Um, and the kind of reigning champion of GMO progress was a guy named Norman Borlaug, and he invented a way to grow wheat that increased the yield, made it a sturdier crop. 
There was a time in the mid-20th century when it was looking like Asia was going to run out of food and lose the ability to feed itself as a continent. And Borlaug dug in, and he found some ways to manipulate wheat to change that. And a huge number of people are alive today as a result of that. So lab-grown meat is not the first step in anything. It's the next step in what has been a multi-decade process of finding better ways to feed people and finding better ways to reduce world hunger. And one of the things that excites me about lab-grown meat is that it has that potential. Now, of course, another thing that excites me, and here's the part, not lecturing again, yeah, we could stop killing animals, and wouldn't that be nice? I spend a lot of time thinking about what our moral blind spots are as a society, because every society in history has had them. It seems unlikely to me that we don't. And you take a snapshot of any historical period, and you can look back and go, gosh, how did, how did people believe that that was okay? Why did people do that and think that was okay? Why did we enslave people? Why did we burn people at the stake? Why did we do these awful things and think it was okay, when now the idea of doing anything like that would be absolutely dreadful. So it can be a perilous game to try to get out in front of history like that and try to be on the right side of it, positioning yourself now for what future generations are going to have to say about you. It's not a game that I try to play a lot, but it is something that I think about. And to the extent that I would be willing to put my money on any one thing, I think Killing and eating live animals is maybe likely to be one of those things that our grandkids, grandkids, grandkids are going to look back and go, why in the heck did people do that? And that's so awful. And can you imagine the slaughter of poor little chickens and cows and pigs? And, okay, I don't like thinking about that aspect of eating food, but again, I'm not a vegetarian. I absolutely eat the product of that mass slaughter. And part of me would really like to not feel guilt when I bite into a cheeseburger. So to me, that's a huge part of what is exciting about the possibility of being able to, me personally, being able to eat meat and not have to feel bad about it. Now, I think one of the fears of this, and it's not really clear why Ron DeSantis is, uh, is attacking this industry. For one thing, He's a Republican. Isn't this supposed to be the small government party that supports business and stuff? Why he is coming down on a business? Let's see, his explanation here, which was incredibly sophisticated, um, was just, we're not going to have fake meat. Like, that doesn't work. Well, thanks, Ron. That's really helpful for you to articulate yourself so well on this issue. Um, maybe it's about food safety. Probably it's a little bit about protecting the cattle industry. But... It's just not clear, and I, I think that a big part of it is just, you know, he got bounced out of the Republican primary. That This was supposed to be his year. He was supposed to be, like, the anti-Trump Trump, like the serious Trump, the actually smart Trump. It was going to be his coronation, and, you know, you see this in politics. People get hyped up, then they actually get in the thing, and nobody likes him. And so he was out uh, after a couple weeks. That's got to hurt. Maybe he's trying to get some of his mojo back by, you know, just cracking the whip and doing what he does down in Florida. I, I don't really know what this is, but I do get a sense that there is more culture war going on here than, than actual policy. That, oh, squishy, bunny-hugger liberals love this idea 
of lab-grown meat, so I'm going to crush it. But I think another component of this is that people are afraid that if lab-grown meat takes off, if cultivated meat becomes popular and it becomes a thing that you can easily buy, that it will make it ultimately more difficult to get real meat, right? To get the, get the good stuff. And that if a there's a kind of moral tax then applied to actually eating the flesh of a real sentient animal that has been killed in order to feed you, that you're not going to be able to go out for a steak anymore. Or you're not going to be able to go out for chicken wings anymore. I think it's very unlikely that I will ever see a world in which that is the case. I don't think that cultivated meat is going to blow up that quickly. Is it a real concern? I guess, yeah, maybe. I could. I mean, I can game that out. I can see that happening. But my response to that is going to be that assumes that you know cultivated meat is going to be slightly less good than the real thing. Well, there's really no reason to think that in the long run that would have to be true. What if it ends up being great? What if everything can taste like filet mignon? What if everything can taste like, you know, something that came out of the cordon bleu? I don't know. It, the point is, this is a, an industry and this is a, an innovation, a technology that is in its infancy. And this is a, just a really crappy time to be putting the kibosh on it just because Ron DeSantis doesn't like it. What a petty little man. Anyway. Um, that was the first thing that I wanted to rant about. And now the last thing, I'm hoping that this format for the podcast will be shorter too. Uh, I, I think I'm aiming for, you know, about a 30 minute, uh, ride for those of you who are listening. But the other thing I wanted to talk about is I want to talk about the election. Uh, and specifically I want to talk about a poll that came out last week that if you are on social media, if you follow a lot of poll watchers, particularly if you follow the Biden team and all of the kind of paid DNC flacks who are out there, uh, out there hoofing it for the president, you probably have heard people talking about this poll that came out of Quinnipiac University and that showed Biden surging, supposedly, right? Biden's way ahead now in this poll. Now, he's not actually way ahead in this poll. He's six points ahead. But that's significant because it's a huge improvement on how he was doing in this very same poll back in December when they took it. Uh, and this is being treated by people who are paid to say this, it's being treated as evidence that the president is improving his fortunes, right? We've heard nothing but doom and gloom from the Biden team. We've heard, no, he's going to get crushed. He's too old. He's going senile. His, his favorability numbers are in the toilet. So this poll comes out and it shows him ahead of Trump. And whoop de do. We're, we're all really happy about it. Okay. Now, I... Those of you who know me know that I'm a Democrat. I plan to vote for Joe Biden in the event that he is the nominee. <clears throat> um, I'm afraid that this poll is not the good news that people want it to be. Uh, and it, it's important to understand why that is. So in terms of the poll itself, there were some oddities with it that made me question it. But the most important thing to understand is that you know, they're flogging this one poll because it was looking like it said good and useful things about how Biden was doing and how he was faring uh, and moving towards November. There are a lot of other polls that came out in the last couple of weeks that were done. It's primary season. A lot of pollsters are conducting surveys right now. None of these other polls show what this one did. Now, that doesn't mean that this one isn't true. It sometimes, 
you know, Quinnipiac might have the, the magic formula that's getting the real numbers that nobody else is getting, but there's just not any real reason to think that. And if you look at the shape of the race more broadly, it's a tight matchup, but Biden is losing in most of these head-to-heads. He's losing against Trump and he's losing against Nikki Haley. That's not a good position for him to be in. And so that's number one, is that you have to place this in context of the broader polling landscape where Joe Biden is not surging and he is not overperforming. The other thing is there was this very odd thing that I noticed in the poll, which was that Biden was shown defeating Trump by about six points, but that number changed when you added the third party candidates into the race. Now, this same poll showed him beating, or sorry, showed Nikki Haley beating him quite substantially, but then showed the race tightening when you added the third party candidates in. And this is an odd thing. And I'm actually, I am just going to read here from my newsletter because it's difficult to explain. It, it took me a while to even formulate it because it's kind of a confusing tidbit and I don't know what it means. And for somebody who follows politics as closely as I do, I'm not trying to sound arrogant here, but it's unusual that something appears in a poll like this and I just absolutely no explanation for why it's there. So I'm going to read from this here. There's a confusing caveat buried in Quinnipiac's results. Biden is shown losing a one-on-one with Haley, but winning significantly once third-party candidates are thrown into the mix. With Trump, the opposite effects, effect takes shape. Biden has the lead, both with and without the also-rans, but their presence makes the race tighter, not wider. Hope you followed that. I cannot form a coherent analysis to explain this. Third-party candidates, particularly those whose politics place them somewhere on the spectrum between the main players rather than past one of their goalposts, they tend to perform better when there's an extreme candidate in the race. Now, if we allow that Trump is more extreme than Haley, and I think you'd have to say that he is, I think that a moderate, maybe centery, right-leaning voter is going to be more put off by Donald Trump than by Nikki Haley, right? Haley's whole appeal is supposed to be that she's the serious candidate, right? The normal politician. Um, it should make Robert Kennedy Jr. more viable when Trump is in the race, right? Because you would expect more people to say, oh, I'm dumping that guy and I'm going for the candidate in the center. But that's not what happens in this poll. So that's just an oddity. What happens in this poll is that it's Haley who is more negatively impacted by having RFK Jr. in the race. Now, why the heck would that be? I don't know. I, it could be that RFK Jr. is just kind of a weird guy and that his politics are kind of a hodgepodge of things that maybe appeal to some folks on the left and maybe appeal to some folks on the right. He's a hardcore environmentalist, for one thing. Um, that's obviously a left-coded belief. But then he's against the Ukraine war, which is more your kind of Tucker Carlson belief. Uh, and he's an Israel hawk, a big one. So. I don't know. I don't know why it is that he should be drawing more from Haley than he is from Trump. And it's important to note that no other poll shows that happening. So I really just highlighted this as another example of there is something fishy about this Quinnipiac poll. Now, I should say, if this result is replicated in future polling, and if it turns out that 
RFK Jr.'s presence in the race is actually pulling votes more from the Republican side, that's very, very, very good news for Joe Biden. Republicans were jumping for joy when RFK quit the Democratic primary and said he was going to run as an independent. Why? The guy had been a Democrat. He's Kennedy, for God's sake, right? He's, a, he's, he's Democrat royalty. It, it seemed obvious that if he was going to pull support, if he was going to be a spoiler, right, he was going to be a spoiler for Biden. Now, maybe not. Maybe he's a spoiler for Trump, although how would that work? Who are these people going, oh, I was going to vote Republican, but now I'm going for RFK Jr.? I, I don't know how this works, uh, and I don't understand why he would... Why, why there are people out there who are going to vote for Trump, but not Haley. If it's Haley, I'm voting for RFK Jr. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. So that's another bizarre thing. Here's the other thing. There is a more recent poll, one from NBC News, and it, it, there's a reason that the DNC people are not talking about this one, because it is all bad news for Joe Biden. Um, not only is he losing both to Haley and to Trump, in this poll, but his approval rating is lower than ever. And he is getting absolutely, this is probably the most damning thing. This is what is making me think like, you know, if these conspiracy theories about Michelle Obama jumping in this race at the last minute or something are true, bring that on because these are almost unrecoverably bad numbers for Biden in this NBC poll. Trump holds a lead over almost every important question regarding how would he handle a big issue. And the worst one by far is Trump has a 20-point advantage on who would do a better job of handling the economy. Now, the one potential saving grace here is that Biden does do a little bit better on who would be better for women and for women's rights, particularly the right to choose. And that has been this Republican albatross since the court overturned Roe v. Wade, and Republicans went hog wild doing these abortion bans. Those are incredibly unpopular. I think they are unpopular in a way that doesn't show up in polls, because I think there are more women who are going to privately vote against that than are going to say to their potentially annoying Republican husbands that that's what they're going to do. That's the theory. Don't know if it's true or not. I just know that Republicans keep thinking they're going to do better than they end up doing in the post-Roe electoral landscape. So maybe we have that going for us. But the issue here with these economy numbers and Biden being 20 points down when actually his presidency hasn't been bad for the economy. It really hasn't been. The numbers are going in the right direction. The problem is that people don't think they are. And there's nothing really that you can do about that other than scream at them that they're wrong and it turns out that if you spend a lot of time screaming at voters that they're idiots and need to do a better job reading statistics and tables, well, they don't really like that either. So that turns out to be something that doesn't work. And I mean, this one, this one boggles the mind, right? Because what do you do about it? Well, reality is one thing, but people think it's another thing. Now, in some cases, we probably do need to have a conversation about whether the economic metrics we're looking at and that the Biden team are touting are actually things that people around their kitchen tables are feeling. So one thing that is true is inflation has improved under Joe Biden. That's true. That can be backed up statistically. Another thing is that wages have actually grown under Biden. 
also a very good thing, right? The problem is these are two numbers that were very, very, very bad during COVID. And they've improved, but wages haven't gone up to match how much more expensive things are now. So even though the numbers are going in the right direction, and you got to give Biden and the Democrats at least a little bit of credit for that, it's not enough. People are impatient. They're not happy with the amount of progress that they've seen. And so their conclusion is, well, he's not doing a good enough job being a leader on the economy. And I don't know how you get around that. But the one final thing here that uh, makes me think that this poll is one that we should take with a massive grain of salt. Let's say it's true that, that Biden is surging. Let's say it's true that this is a turning point in his campaign. He's going to start actually performing well and people are going to start responding well to him. What would be the cause of that? What has happened in the last two or so weeks to make Joe Biden more popular. The war in Gaza keeps getting worse and he keeps getting less popular for it. There has been no serious economic turnaround on the Republican side. There isn't any indication that Trump or Haley have had anything go really, really badly for them, except maybe for the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit and Trump losing that, although there's been a lot of polling on that too, and it's not clear that his voters care that much about that issue. So. I just don't know. And, and again, it, it's an outlier poll. None of the other polls show Biden doing well. So we'll know if, if this really is a trend, it's going to be picked up by other surveys and we'll see it. If it's not, we'll see that too, unfortunately. And, and then we'll know that this one was just a fluke. But the final point I want to make about this is for the next several months, if you're a left-leaning voter, if you're a voter who cares about the fortunes of the Democratic Party, and if you care about Joe Biden winning in November, as I do, he's not my favorite candidate. He's not who I would have picked, but he's who I'm going to go with because I'd rather he be president than Donald Trump or Nikki Haley. And being real, it ain't going to be Nikki Haley. It's going to be Donald Trump who gets the Republican nod. So, and I'd rather have Biden. That said, we have to be very careful listening to DNC spokespeople for a while. And the reason for that is that they are not incentivized right now to paint a full picture of what this thing looks like. They are, it may not be a serious primary threat that Biden is facing with Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson, but it is still a primary election. And the last thing Joe Biden's image needs right now is that he's in a tight primary race and that he's in trouble. So the DNC flax are all going to be out there promoting this poll like it's true. You've got to know, watching at home, that it really probably isn't and that actually Biden is in very, very deep trouble. Okay? So you've got to know that. That's important to know if you have any inclination to do something like organize or knock on doors or put a yard sign out or start talking to your friends about why you think this should be the guy. Now is the time to start doing that. Do not wait for them to sound the alarm because they're not going to sound the alarm. They can't. They can't risk somebody like Dean Phillips or Marianne Williamson actually surging and actually threatening Biden's renomination. That is the last thing they want. Now, I don't think there's any real threat of that, but one never knows. Biden had a very bad moment just today where he claimed, man, he claimed to have recently met with Mitterrand, who was the president of France back in the early 90s. 
So Biden did not recently meet with this guy, and he just kind of wandered off script and started saying this. And of course, the right is jumping up and down on this issue um, and saying, oh, you know, more evidence that he is experiencing dementia. And for what it's worth, I have always thought that while Republicans obviously have an ulterior motive for saying that, they may not be wrong. I've seen dementia, and it does kind of look like what I see when I look at Joe Biden. Uh, and if indeed that is true, it is very, very troubling, although it is not going to be the first time that we have had somebody suffering from dementia in the White House. Ronald Reagan famously during his second term was beginning to slip quite badly and had to have his staff covering for him. Kind of like Biden, though, Reagan had this affable personality and he, he came across well on camera. He was able to kind of yuck it up with the press enough that he got through it and the nation did not crumble, so it probably won't this time either. But my point is, if you are listening to somebody who is a paid flunky for the Democratic Party, do not take what they are saying about polling or about Joe Biden seriously. Right now, they are incentivized to paint a rosy picture, not to paint a true one. It is panic time. If you are a Dem, Biden is not in good shape. And that is all I have for this first videotaped podcast. If you're still listening to me, if you're still watching me on YouTube, I really appreciate you being here and I really appreciate the support you have shown me. Um, one more plug. Please hit that subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe to the podcast. Please think about going over to Substack and subscribing to the newsletter. It's free. Substack makes it very, very easy for you to become a subscriber. It only takes a few seconds. So, And it would be a great big help to me. So I think I don't know. I will watch this back and see if I can tolerate having done this. Um, but I think I can, and I think it takes a little bit less time, and it's kind of fun having a more free-form discussion. So I think you can probably expect to see me again in a few weeks. That's all for now. Thank you again for joining me.